Good morning. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 8 this morning. Ecclesiastes 8, we're in this series, Insatiable, and kind of making our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, chapter 8, 1 through 17, scan the QR code. If you need a Bible, slip a hand up. We've got some ushers, and uh, you can borrow one this morning. Glad that you are here uh, in person, and um, those who are joining us online and those in traditions, there's no kindred campus this morning because of the weather and because of the roads, but we're glad that, that you are here. Uh, I want to make a quick announcement, and uh, <clears throat> um, you know our mission statement is to love God, love others, and serve the world. And our mission statement, um, the movement within that or the pathway within that, like to answer the question, how do we do that? We use three words, gather, grow, go. And uh, the gather is the idea from the time that somebody enters the doors or actually drives in our parking lot, enters the doors, all the way through this worship service until you leave uh, after the church service. So that's what we call our gathering. So that can involve children's ministry, hospitality, um, the worship service, all aspects of a Sunday morning. Well, as we've been kind of working hard on gather, grow, go, um, and kind of just wrestling with that, we decided to uh, uh, conduct a climate survey. And if you guys were here in 2014, any of you, who was here in 2014? Yeah, so a few of you, and maybe you remember this, maybe you don't, but you did a climate survey in 2014 that was really helpful, over a thousand people filled it out, which is a really high percentage, that's really cool. So we're gonna conduct another climate survey that asks all kinds of questions um, from the time that you enter the doors, go through the worship service, check your kids, whatever it is, all Sunday morning, we're gonna conduct that next Sunday during the church service. So we're carving out 15 minutes during the church service for people to do the climate survey. You can, you'll also have, be able to do it online and it'll be in the e-news the following week so people can click on a link and do it there. But we'll have a QR code next Sunday that you can scan and you can just do it right on your phone. What we're finding, there's, I think there's like 50 questions, if I remember right. <clears throat> You're like, oh my goodness, that's a lot. On average, we've had about 20 people take it so far. On average, it's taken about 10 minutes to do. And that includes um, adding some comments here and there as well. So we're gonna do that. We're gonna conduct that in the church service next week. We're carving out 15 minutes. Um, and let me just say uh, <clears throat> thank you ahead of time for helping us get better. That's what we wanna do. We wanna become more effective, more efficient. And uh, we're, so we're asking, we're inviting uh, feedback from all of you. So next Sunday, and if you're like, well, I can't be here next Sunday, don't worry. There'll be other opportunities. You can click on links and stuff that'll come through email and so on. So we're looking forward to that. Remember in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is looking at life from his own vantage point. He's kind of, if you remember, he's kind of looking at life through his own lens. Unfortunately, what we're discovering and we've been reminded of is that he's using his own wisdom uh, apart from God. And he experiments all the way through life, conducts all these different experiments to try to find purpose and make sense of things. And every time he conducts an experiment, he concludes with the same thing. Life is just meaningless. That's kind of where he ends up uh, all the time. So now we come to chapter eight and um, the first point or the first idea that we see in scripture is this idea of endure authority. It's in the first 13 verses. <clears throat> who is like the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. 
Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? So let's stop right there in verse four, and we'll continue here in just a second. So Solomon was now in search of a wise man who could interpret a thing. So just who can interpret this? Solomon knew that wisdom makes a person happier. Even wisdom here on this earth, even wisdom under the sun, not even speaking of the wisdom from God, just wisdom in general can make a person happier. It makes a face shine. And if you're wise enough, you're going to keep the command of a king. Obey the king's command is what he says, because you took an oath before God. Solomon understood what Paul would write about later in the book of Romans, that we should obey uh, governmental authority as a part of our obedience to God. And we don't, we don't do it uh, primarily to honor king or government, although that is a part, rather one of our ways is to honor God, is by honoring authorities that he has instituted. And right away you might be thinking, oh, where, where is this gonna go? Um, let me just set you at ease, but I think there's some good challenges here for all of us. If someone in any given season is in authority and they do not perfectly align with your ways of thinking, I would say this, it doesn't, it doesn't give us the right as followers of Christ to condemn them or hate them. So follow me for a second. If in fact God is sovereign and in control of all things, including government, governments and people of high power. We have to trust him knowing that he in some way is always accomplishing his perfect plan and his perfect will. We have to trust him. If we believe God causes and allows all things, which I believe that, I believe in a high view of God's sovereignty, he causes and allows all things, nothing happens without his permission. Then we must also apply that to governing authorities. Nobody is in any position unless God caused it or allowed it. As we respect and obey the men and women God has either caused or allowed to be in positions of power, we're honoring God. By dishonoring men and women in power, we're dishonoring God. Among the vanities in life is living in circumstances over which we have no or little control. The preacher, Solomon, observed that evil men are often in positions of power and offers his counsel or enduring such vanity, such seasons. Submitting to governing authorities is important, especially in view of the power wielded by those in authority. The, there will be times when wicked rule, bringing misery, and it's be patient. While judgment against such evil may be delayed, it will come in its own time, and, and the wicked will soon be forgotten after demise. In the meantime, it's best to fear God. 
Another vanity is how the righteous sometimes suffer while the wicked prosper. We've all seen this as well. The preacher, Solomon, reiterates his conclusion that it is best to seek to enjoy what God gives in one's labor under the sun. So even the wisest man is unable to discern all that God is doing, no matter how hard he tries. And it goes on in verse three and four. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Who can say that? So a king or government in many ways will do as they please, right? Wisdom says you don't have to stand with them for a bad cause. We could, we could add here uh, the idea of immorality, right? But don't stand against them. Every person, even those who are in positions of power, even those whom we might disagree with, are individuals created in the image of God. And I don't think anybody would argue with that. They are people who have value and who deserve respect at the basic human level, right? Maybe you are already thinking, but I don't agree with or respect the decisions certain people have or are making in positions of power. Of course, right? What we're learning here is that while you may not agree with or you may not respect a person's decisions, their decisions don't define them. Just as your decisions don't define you. We must separate what a person does from who they are. In the same way, we are willing to separate a person's sin behavior from who they are. How many here would want to be judged on your worst moments? We would never say to an alcoholic, you are an alcoholic, that's who you are. We would say, uh, on the other hand, you're, you're God's creation. You're created in his image. You have value. You deserve respect. Alcoholism is what you choose. It's not who you are. And so here's the difficulty we face with this kind of thinking uh, during the time in which we are living. We are living in a time when many are saying you cannot separate what a person does from who they are. Many are saying you cannot disagree with my choices without it affecting your perception of who I am. because the two go hand in hand. For many in our society, behavior and identity cannot be separated. They're one and the same. They're, they're inseparable Siamese twins. So by linking the two, a person's behavior and their identity together, we have a huge problem. If we say a, a, a person's behavior and their identity is one and the same, that you cannot separate those two things, here's the deal. There can never be a wrong. Everything would always have to be right. There would be no moral standard by which anything could ever be wrong. Well, we all know there's a standard of right from wrong. I hope that you know that, that there's a standard from right from wrong, but our standard, the word of God, should not keep us from loving someone that we disagree with. God disagrees with people's choices all the time, even our own choices, right? Us included. But he never ceases to value, respect, and love us unconditionally, as we are called to do. 
Solomon goes on, whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a person may be weighed down by misery. Since no one knows the future, who can tell someone else what is to come? As to one has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the time of their death. As no one is discharged in the time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. It goes on verse nine. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. So just a quick statement. A part of man's misery on this earth is being ruled over by people who oppress them, right? Let's keep going. Then too, I saw the wicked buried. Those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. Verse 11, when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them. And their days will not lengthen like a shadow. So all of this, this mind-boggling stuff was troubling Solomon. He saw that the wicked died and that they were buried and that, and that their evil was soon forgotten, like it, was just, it just disappeared. And again, from, from Solomon's earthly, under the sun perspective, this lens that he's looking through, he could not believe that the wicked were not punished. He could not get his mind around that. As though to say, what, what is wrong with God? Where is justice? We've all seen, we've all read stories about evil that seems to go unnoticed. It's a mystery. How is it that evil people in some cases are exalted and the corrupt people are rewarded? How can that possibly be? If Solomon were alive today, as troubled as he was then, he would be going crazy as he watched what what appeared to be wicked and evil go unpunished. As he looked at life, remembering our days are limited, he was asking, where is it? Why aren't you doing your job, God? Here's what I would say. Until we resolve with God, knowing that he will have the final word and he is the one to dish out the consequences, we will drive ourselves crazy pretending we know better than God the timing and the severity of punishment that each person deserves. He goes on, uh, verses 14 through 17, endure the seasons of life. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. So he continues to scratch his head. Lord, how can it be that there are righteous people, righteous men who have it so bad and evil men who have it so good? But keep in mind, all of this is Solomon is not allowing in his mind the possibility. So imagine that he, he, he has out of his mind this possibility of a future judgment where God re- will reward the righteous and punish evil. So he's that's not even on his radar screen, so to speak. 
He was zoomed in too far. He was zoomed into life so closely that he wasn't able to see the bigger picture of what is yet to come. If we take that out of our thinking and we lose that, lose that perspective and you live limited under the sun, uh, meaningless life perspective, then it would make complete sense to think like Solomon. Of course we would think just like him, right? With a limited perspective, it's easy to look around and see wicked people who get by just fine and righteous people who suffer. It's not right and no one's doing anything to stop it, is what Solomon's saying. How are so many believers killed year after year after year because of their faith? And the ones who kill them go on with life as though nothing happened. The injustices of this world will put you in a padded room if you fail to trust in God's final judgment. It will make you go berserk. Be reminded of the truth of God's word. Let me just share a few with you. Second Peter 3, 8 and 9 says this. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. His love for mankind, wanting none to perish, far outweighs our urgency for justice. He is faithful to all of his promises. I wanna say that again, his love for mankind wanting none to perish far outweighs our urgency for justice. Romans 2, 4 says, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? He's not kind just for kindness sake. His kindness has a goal and his kindness is repentance. 1 Timothy 1.15 says this, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Paul wrote about Jesus' mission to pay the ransom for sinners of which he said, I am the worst. So guys, here's the good news. We don't have to be first in line because Paul is saying, hey, I already got that place. Like I'm the worst sinner ever. But I think what a challenge for us when we stand impatient with God's swift judgment, forgetting that there are, there are two lines of people, right? There's a line for sinners and there's a line for sinners saved by grace. And I hope that you're in the second line, that you're a sinner saved by grace. When we find ourselves impatient of God's judgment, we can't forget his patience toward us. And I think that the, the mirror reminds us to be thankful of God's patience as we are impatient with others. Let's not lose sight of Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne 
and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The final judgment is a pivotal moment in time separating the, hu- the, the, the end of human history and the beginning of this eternal state. Judgment will be handed down by, by a perfect God. No mistrial, no hung jury, no inadmissible evidence, no plea of insanity, no reduced sentence for good behavior. God will be completely just and fair. He cannot be swayed by excuses or lies. Nothing but complete, total judgment for every ounce of evil. The judgment of evil is coming. Some pay the consequences now but soon all evil will stand trial and be judged. Back to Ecclesiastes 8. So with all of these confusing things in mind, Solomon, verse 15, so I commend the enjoyment of life. So he's he's talking about all these things that he's scratching his head with, and he says, so it's kind of like he just kind of gives up, so to speak. So I just commend the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat, to drink, and be glad. Just do those things. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of life that God has given them under the sun. So he begins in verse 15, just enjoy life. Don't get caught up in all the complexities. None of this in life makes sense anyway. You might as well just make the most of life. Stay distracted is kind of what he's saying. Stay distracted with food, with drink, with, with, and just be happy. This will keep you from having to look too deeply in your soul. Carpe diem. Make the most of the present time and give little thought to the future. There's a difference between living in the present and for the present. Because I said earlier in this series, the idea of living in the present is this idea of don't miss what's happening right now in front of you. Don't miss the seasons of life that God has given you. Whatever that is, whatever, be there, be be present, be in the moment, but don't live for the present. Verse 16 and 17, when I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. Then Solomon, so, so Solomon once again, as he's done so many times in his writing, kind of comes full circle. 
and he concludes, no one can understand God anyway. No matter how hard one works, no matter how much you, you search, no matter how much one thinks they know about God, no matter how wise someone thinks that they are, no one really knows. No one really knows. That's Solomon. Seems kind of hopeless. Seems kind of discouraging. But, but here's what I want to say. I want to say, hold on. I don't want you leaving today agreeing with Solomon's assessment of life, walking out of here, throwing up your hands and saying, what's the use? Let's leave clinging to the truth of who God is. And I want to give you five of them. <clears throat> the first truth that I want you to leave with this morning is this, that he's trustworthy. Psalm 20 verse seven says this, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. A question I would have for us to wrestle with is, what are we trusting in? What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in a paycheck? Are you trusting in the things that you have? Are you trusting in relationships? Reminds me of a story of this couple that I knew and they had this solid Christian marriage. And then the man comes and he reveals that he had had an affair. And the wife was absolutely devastated. And as the healing process began and as they were working through that, the question was asked of her, so will you ever trust him again? And her answer was brilliant and I'll never forget it. She said, I cannot put my full trust in him again as a human. My full trust must be in God first. He's the only one who will not fail me. Guys, we will fail each other. If you're putting a lot of weight on your spouse or someone else or like all my trust is in him, they would never do this. They would never fail me. They will never let me down. Maybe. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He is faithful. He's eternal. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and is to come, the Almighty. He is strength. Psalm 28.7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy and with my song I praise him. He is our only hope. Psalm 62, five and six says this, yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. And so I don't want you to leave here, friends, this morning kind of uh, agreeing with Solomon or aligning with Solomon, like what's the use and throwing up our hands and just like, let's just go eat and drink and be happy and do the best that we can. No, because there's so many promises in scripture of who our God is. I, wanna, I want us to align and point to the truth of who our God is. That's where our hope is. The one thing that I wanna leave you with is Psalm 4610, which might be a familiar verse. It says this, be still, and know that I am God. 
I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. 